Joshua chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, reading through verse 12. This is the word of the living God. It's given for you. Let's, Let's give attention to it even this morning. Joshua 5, beginning worth verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, and to all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, but they, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruits of the land of Canaan that year. Amen. This is indeed the word of the living God. Let's ask for his help as we consider these 12 verses together in the preaching of it this morning. Let's pray. Father, now as we turn to this very rich narrative, a narrative that contains so much for us, so much so that it would be impossible to exposit all of it today, but we thank you for that which you have given to us knowing that we are powerless to understand it, unless he who you've promised to give us does indeed attend to all that is said and heard. And so we count on your promises. We pray that your spirit would help us now for the glory of God indeed, but also for the good of your people. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Was I was in the military, albeit I was in the military for a very brief period, some here even this morning know a little bit about this, but one of the main principles of basic training was to prepare us, to discipline ourselves that we might be prepared if, in fact, we would enter battle. That is to say, we were given the rudimentary issues, the rudimentary tools 
that would accompany us on our warfare against the enemy. Well, in much the same way, here in this fifth chapter, in the narrative of this book of Joshua, we have quite clearly just that. While it is certainly not, as it were, a basic training event, it is the equipping of God to give to His people the very tools that He provides that they might fight not against people so much, but against the world and the flesh and the devil. Put a different way, the people of God now are being prepared to take on the enemy. They are being prepared to take on the various forces that they will face as they go in further into the land of promise. They are being prepared for that great battle, and we too, as we use the tools in the way that God has prescribed them to be used, we are being prepared for the world and the flesh and the devil. We don't do it through conventional means. The people of Israel on the plains of Gilgal, the plains of Jericho, they aren't going to use traditional means by which they are prepared for war. God does not hand them swords and spears and clubs. He gives them the real weapons of their warfare, the means that he provides that they might conquer that which all of this book is picturing for us in the first place, ourselves and the world and the enemy of our souls. That is to say that he gives to the people of God of old and to you and me today the various means by which we do that. What are they? Worship, the sacraments, prayer. It's all here in this fifth chapter in one way or another, woven through the narrative and the very historical, real account of people who experience very much the sacraments, especially the sacraments, is given to the church. Weapons of their warfare. Now, when you think of the act of worship, of which the sacraments are done and only there done, do you see it that way? Do you, do you understand that the essential nature and quality of worship as a means by which God equips you to do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Some of you are getting creamed by the world because you don't seize the advantage of public worship. It is one of the ways in which people are often consumed by the world. When they begin to, when they start refusing or even resisting the means that God provides in order to conquer those things that are greater than you left to yourself. The sacraments, of which there are two, baptism, which we, God willing, will see in, in, in many times over the next few weeks, actually. It's always a joyful time. It is for me, I can tell you, and I know it is for the parents, and it should be for all of you. But it is a weapon of your warfare as you remember your baptism and all that it pictures. The Lord's Supper, we faithfully celebrate it, and it is a celebration every Lord's Day. Not merely as a memorial, 
looking back over our shoulder of what Christ has done. It is that, but it is more than that. It is God equipping you to go out into the world to remind you of his presence with you and you with him that you might take on the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is not just a tradition. It is not just a ritual. And if you approach it that way, it's a no wonder the world's running you over. God gives those things here to the church of old. He does. As they have just crossed the Jordan River, in the accounts that we've already taken up in chapters 3 and 4, they are about to engage in the Battle of Jericho. An odd battle, as you know, as you read the account. It's strange, isn't it, how they are told to do the various things that they do. We'll get to that in due course. But this is really the inaugural event of the people of old in the promised land. The first thing they do when they get there is worship the God of heaven. They don't start running obstacle courses and preparing their physical endurance for the battle of Jericho. They don't begin to look at battle plans and strategies that are laid out by Joshua, who was in fact a military man. They worship They engage in the sacraments of the church that they might be equipped, prepared for what lies ahead of them. And what lies ahead? A battle? One of flesh and blood indeed for them, but a picture for us indeed, a picture of our pilgrimage in the Christian life and worship itself and the sacraments in particular are essential to that pilgrimage. To refuse or ignore them is to undervalue what God himself has given you. It is to actually, in a sense, to blaspheme him. To say, I know better. I don't need these things. I need something else, you know. It's not how it happened in Joshua 5. It doesn't happen here in this church. And as long as I'm able to draw breath, it never will. We must seize these things. We must rightly understand them. We must be instructed in them. We must be taught them. Mom and dads, you're responsible to do that for your children. Every time that plate passes by for your covenant children who don't know the Lord, you have an opportunity to show them what it means, what it does, what it is about. When they witness a baptism, again, that responsibility falls to you as much as it falls to me from this pulpit to explain these things, but these things that are given to the church that they might be successful in the battle that lies ahead. Do you sense the battle? Are there days in which you are weary from the wrestling with your own sin? I suggest that if you're not, if you don't care about your own sin, I'd suggest you're not a Christian. Because that's one of the marks of being a believer. Do you sense the the struggle with the world and all that is going on and the culture and its influence? Why is it happening? Well, it's happening because they're following the prince of the power of the air. And you, my friends, are in his sights. Are you going to use the weapons of your warfare? Are you going to get creamed? Satan himself who kill you where, he stood, where you stood if he was allowed. He hates you that much. God gives to the church. He provides. He provides these things. They are sacraments of the God of heaven. Preaching comes from, the gods, from God's word. They are his gifts, his tools. The tools, as you know, don't have much use 
if they're not used. They must be used, or you will be lost. You will be lost. He who perseveres to the end will indeed be saved. God gives you the means. He hands them to you. He says, use them. Use them. The people of old here in Joshua 5, they do just that. They seize the opportunity presented. They first obey, don't they, the very preaching, as it were, of the God of heaven as he gives instruction to them to celebrate very much the sacrament of baptism, that is to say, in the picture of circumcision, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is to say, in the picture of Passover. They do that in this chapter as a means by which they would be prepared to take, <clears throat> to take on the battle of Jericho, which happens in the very next chapter. And it's here that we will consider these things. And so I'm going to show you this morning two items that are vital. Nay, they're necessary. Vital, necessary for your warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm going to show you here in this 12-verse narrative... Two items that are vital for your warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three points as we consider this portion of God's Word this morning. First, we will consider the place of worship, and then the acts of worship, and then the weapons of worship or flow from worship, the weapons of our warfare. First, the place of worship is given to us. The setting is an all-inclusive bridge between what occurred and what will occur. Sandwiched neatly, and certainly not by accident, between the accounts of chapters 3 and 4, we have chapter 5. Now, I realize you're thinking, well, gee, uh, that's genius. You spent all week figuring that out? No, not really. Those numbers weren't there anyway, so be that as it may. Sandwiched between the events of the crossing of the Jordan to the battle of Jericho that will occur in chapter 6, we have this, this, this hinge. We have this, this bridge, an all-inclusive bridge, between what happened and what will happen. And so a plan is formed. God himself, Jehovah himself, is speaking in verse 2. He says to Joshua something that would be unexpected, frankly, at, at time, in times of war. In times of battle, imagine our generals and the United States Army as we are being attacked, uh, uh, sitting around, and, and, and this is the instruction they give to the military. Something of this effect. It would be insane, wouldn't it? Nuts, almost. I can see Fox News and all the other news pundits uh, picking on and mocking the, the Pentagon for such stupidity. Indeed, Except this isn't the Pentagon that's given the instructions here in this chapter. It's the God of heaven. And the Lord himself preaches a sermon, if you will, to Joshua. He tells them what the plan is going to be. It's not what you would expect. It's not what I would expect. The people are ready for war. They are about to pick up swords and clubs and spears and whatever else they would use to do battle. You would expect that God would preach a sermon about uh, and, and, and have the people sing, a mighty fortress is our God, and onward we go. Onward, Christian soldiers, and that's not what happens. Counterintuitive, really, 
at least from our perspective. You would expect that he would give Joshua some detailed plans as to how to take Jericho. He's going to do that, but not now. Not now. The purpose, of course, is that he might remind the people that, and remind us through their very experience that our worship and the acts that we perform in worship is indeed a preparation. It is a battle plan. It is constructed in such a way that we might have great success in the Christian life. While it is true, of course, that the battle of Jericho was physical, but it wasn't merely physical, it was also spiritual, because it is God who fought for them, went before them, and conquered for them. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't pick up spears and clubs and worse or better, depending on your perspective of things. No, our battle is against the spiritual forces that reside in the heavenly places. Our battle is against our own selves. Our battle is against the very world in which we live. And as we think about that in the context of this particular chapter, thus applying it to the New Testament church and the leader of he who is the commander of the army of the host who has gone before us, securing the very victory of which was spiritual, not physical, We see just how vital these things then become in our lives. The place of worship is in the very shadows of Jericho. They can see the walls. The people can see them, the kings, as the narrator tells us in the opening words of the chapter, the, the kings of the Amorites who were behind the Jordan to the west and the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. And what was their response? Oh, we are doomed. What a mess. We are in for the long haul. We're going to get creamed. And the church of Jesus Christ will never be defeated. It is militant, isn't it? As it storms the very gates of hell, a verse that is often misunderstood, a verse that it seems to argue from, at least to hear some people preach it, as a defensive posture that the church somehow takes up in the world. Wrong! The church is offensive. We are the ones lobbing bombs into the enemy's camp. We're the ones on the, uh, on the attack, but it's not a physical one. It's a spiritual one, and therefore the plans are spiritual. The plans are given that we might indeed conquer that which is spiritual, the very forces of evil, evil themselves. And so we have then the acts of worship as detailed for us in this fifth chapter. This is the longest of the three points, by the way. We first have circumcision. It's given right there. It's pretty obvious. I don't know how smart you have to be to see what's going on. It's pretty clear. As the narrator spends a great deal of ink to explain this circumcision. He begins by describing it, the particulars of it. He says that they are to take flint knives, signaling the antiquity, the ancient ways of doing things, antiquity. I wasn't going to be able to go on until I said that word out loud. It was going to bug me the rest of the day. 
It highlights us back, doesn't it, all the way back to that first circumcision in which God himself in Genesis 17 institutes the very sign of the covenant. A sign that was placed upon the male of the household. A bloody sacrifice. An event that took place to separate out from the world those who would be part of the visible community of God's people. The narrator goes on to talk about how this was done a second time. You may have read that and thought, that's kind of strange. I mean, how many times does one have to be circumcised? Of course, we know, as he explains, this is a curious statement indeed, but the point is that the people of God that perished in the wilderness were circumcised, but the new generation of Israel had not been. It's amazing they were still alive. But they were in their period of wilderness wandering. They were in that period of in-between from the freedom that they experienced from Egypt now into the promised land. They, at 40 years of age or older, and all their children after them had not been circumcised. They had not been marked and set apart as part of God's covenant people. And so God says this new generation, they must be marked as mine. And they are then indeed marked by God himself. We must never forget that these sacraments of the church, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, are not inventions of men, nor are they that which come from men. But they are signs and seals of the covenant of grace given by God. That means they're His. He orders them, and He orders this here in this act of worship as the people are there gathered. But let's remember a few things about circumcision. Being circumcised did not guarantee that the people were really the people of God. What do I mean by that? I I mean they may look the part, they may even act the part at times, but just because you've been circumcised, nay, just because you've been baptized into the church does not mean you're going to heaven. Let's be real clear about this. It's not a salvific thing. It is an entrance into the visible church, the community of believers. This is what they're doing here on the plains of Jericho. This is what happens here whenever you see a baptized, an infant baptized. That's what you're witnessing. Entrance into the visible, established, covenant people in which they then align themselves not only with the God of heaven, but also all that he has said, all of his precepts, all of it, with the obligation then, therefore, that they will believe in the God who has placed it upon them. Some here on the plains of Jericho that were circumcised eventually rebelled. Some of them badly. We will see that in just a few chapters. And just because one is baptized here in this church does not that's therefore guarantee that they are actually members of the invisible church and elect. Now, we need to be very clear about this. But there is an expectation, isn't there? That as God places the sign and seal upon them, that they will live obedient lives before Him, by faith trusting in the Savior. This This act of circumcision separates these people, then therefore, apart from the world, 
to the visible community of God, but some resisted. They did not truly love God with their whole heart. They rebelled from a lack of trust of Him. This is very much a picture, as the narrator tells us, about those that came out of Egypt. Verse 5, though all the people who came out had been, who had come out, who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness had, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. Who are those people that came out of Egypt and were circumcised? They're all dead. Why are they dead? Uh, because, as the text tells us, they perished. Verse 6, they perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Children, your baptism, adults, really doesn't matter. You see, Presbyterians, you know, we baptize both. We baptize adult converts into the faith. They come to faith in Christ. They're the sojourner. They come into the church. They profess faith in Christ. We baptize them. Yes, of course we do. Children born to one or both parents who are believers, we baptize. Why? Because they, they have right to the covenant. It's always been that way in the Bible. Always will be. Always has been. But children, you have been baptized. You who have been baptized, you don't remember your baptism. I, I suggest you don't. You may have been eight years old, nine, or eight days old, nine days old, 12 days old. I don't know. But I do know this. You don't remember it. But you're still obligated to it. As God in his gracious kindness placed you in a Christian home, he did that by his own intention. In his sovereign act of love for you, he puts you in a family that loves Christ. Where you would hear the gospel, where they would take you to church, where you will see the acts of the, the, the weapons of our warfare displayed week after week in the preaching of the word and the sacraments administered rightly. Will you obey the gospel? Because it is a command. Repent and believe the gospel. Some of you children today, sitting here in this room, you don't know Christ. You've never made a profession of faith. You don't benefit from the Lord's Supper. You see it go by every week, week after week, and you do nothing. Mom and dads, you need to remind them. You need to remind them. That this was an act of the God of heaven for you, placing you in this home, putting you here, that you might hear of the hope of glory. Will you not respond to the voice of the Lord and trust Christ? It's not a seminary test. No child in this church is put through the rigors of that. I don't wish that on anybody, frankly. Nobody is asking for that. We're asking what? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know you're a sinner? The people of old rejected the God of heaven. They disobeyed him, proving their unbelief. The writer to the Hebrews makes it abundantly clear in chapter 3 that they, fa- they did not enter because of their unbelief. They were circumcised. But it meant nothing for them. Here, these people are circumcised. They're given this, the weapons of their warfare, the new Israel that we are then part of. This new Israel that was circumcised at Gilgal. Which, by the way, the word Gilgal means to roll back. Ask me later. 
It was here. I thought I'd say it. The rollback was the reproach of not being circumcised. It was a reproach. Our confession says that it's a great sin to neglect the ordinance of baptism on our children. Why? Probably because of the reproach it brings in not doing it. God gives to them this act. What is the significance for us? When I was a baby, I was born, I was circumcised for no other reason than health reasons. It had nothing to do with anything else. It's nothing to do with the Bible's uh, picture of circumcision. What does circumcision in Joshua 5 have to do with us today as the New Testament church? Well, it has to do with everything. As a weapon of our warfare, as the means by which God signs and seals His covenant of grace upon the baptized recipient. It's been replaced by water baptism, no longer needing a bloody sacrifice of the, the, the stripping of the, the, the act of circumcision. That has been accomplished in Christ alone as He offered His blood once for all for the atonement of sin. No blood needed any longer. Water is the replacement. It is the, the, the vehicle by which then, therefore, it is placed upon the head of the baptized. It's the outward, visible sign that, that this baptized individual is part of the covenant community of God's people, just like it was in the Old Testament. It is today. It hasn't changed, regardless of what the Baptists will tell you. It's just not true. It has always been part and parcel of the church ever since the very beginning that children were included in the covenant people. Children here are circumcised. Adults here are circumcised. Is anyone really going to tell me that Joshua 5 doesn't have a single child in it? There's millions of people here. Many children. It's the outward, visible sign that that the baptized is part of the covenant community of God's people. What is baptism? What does our larger catechism teach us? Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of, a graft, of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by His blood and regeneration by His Spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into, note this, the visible church. You see, the catechism stays out of the corner, doesn't it? We're not Rome. It's not salvific. But it doesn't mean that it means nothing, for it means everything. Why? Because then, as members of the visible church, they are afforded all the benefits of the church. They hear me preach. That may or may not be a benefit, but be that as it may, you hear me. You see the sacraments. You witness these things. You enjoy the fellowship believers. You have Christian friends that are hopefully pointing you to Christ and not the other way. Parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Children, 
That is what you have entered into. I didn't have anything to do with it. You're right. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad? Left to yourself, you wouldn't want any of this. But God in his kindness and love for you said, you know what? I'm going to place this upon you. You belong to me. There's the deal. You're part of my church, visibly expressed. It's a great thing, not a bad thing. As I've said already and need to make very clear, hence the repetition, baptism does not save a soul. Though you have, may have the marks, your heart needs to be baptized by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been baptized here in this church. I suspect most of you, if not all of you. If you haven't been baptized, you need to let me know. You come faithfully every week, you might be on the membership rolls. i got to tell you, that's not the rolls God's going to look at on that great day. He's not going to ask me to bring the roll book of Providence Church so he can see your name written in it. Yeah, but I was baptized. Great. But I came to church every week. Great. I was on the roll book of Providence. Great. Are you on the roll book of the Lamb's Book of Life is the question. All of these sacraments, they point that way. They point that way. And here in Joshua 5, the people are being marked by God as His. With all the obligations that come from it then, to be what? To be obedient? To live according to that which He has said? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. You'll do what you're told. First thing you'll do, Children, is profess faith in Christ. You will admit that I can't get to heaven because mom and dad. I can't get to heaven because of my pastor either. I can't get to heaven because of godly elders or deacons. I get to heaven when I say, my baptism told me I need to trust Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting Jesus Christ. I'm trusting nothing else. I trust Christ. But not only in this chapter do we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper too, don't we? Less ink is given to it in the chapter because the narrator had to explain the whole concept of circumcision as far as its second use and that language that he chose. So from verses 10 through 12, we have, as it were, the Lord's Supper celebrated. For the Lord's Supper is really the simple form and simple addition of Passover. It's interesting, isn't it, in the New Testament, whenever Jesus, whenever we read of the administration of the, of, of the Lord's Supper, Matthew chapter 26 and the other parallel accounts, it's always in the shadow of the Passover meal. Connection? Oh, yeah. Simpler thing, aren't you glad, frankly? Much simpler with greater emphasis. The visible sign of redemption is given in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper of Passover. The timing, of course, is that it is done on the date in which God prescribed it. The narrator goes out of his way to tell us on verse 10, on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. What month? The first month. If you were here last Lord's Day afternoon, you heard all of this. I'm not going to repeat it. 
But it's on the date God prescribed. They crossed the Jordan, they arrived on the other side on that day, and they were to celebrate the Passover. Where? In plain sight of the enemies of God's people. Plain sight. You would think the enemies would have been a little smarter and maybe said, let's seize it, let's get them now while they're sitting around healing. Nothing happens. God protects them. Text tells us as they were healing. The enemies didn't do a thing. God kept them from them. They celebrate this Passover in the plain sight of the enemies of God's people. What is the significance for us in the New Testament church? That just like in circumcision, a la baptism, here in the Passover, a la the Passover, or the Passover now, the Lord's Supper for us. What is the significance? Well, the Passover is the type for the Lord's Supper that Christ will institute for His church, and He has in much simpler ways. The Passover of old was a memorial meal of redemption. As they took the Passover on the plains of Jericho, they were saying through the act of taking the Passover that they understood at some level, they understood the whole work of God's redeeming acts and bringing them out of Egypt, but also bringing them across the Jordan. They understood what it meant to be rescued by a Savior. The Lord's Supper tells us that every single time. When you take this meal, it's not magic. I've said this before. There is nothing inherently magic in either one of the elements that are sitting on that table before me. It's only through the blessing of Christ that they have any effect in your life. Period. It doesn't even depend on me whether I feel good or don't feel good. Whether I preached a rotten sermon or preached a good sermon, it doesn't matter. It doesn't depend upon the one who administers it. It depends on the grace of Christ to apply it to the people. But that doesn't say that you sit there passively, as the people here in Joshua 5 are not passive in their expression of these things. They're involved, and if you know anything about the Passover meal, you know it's nothing passive about it. The Lord's Supper is the same. As you come to this meal, you come by faith, believing that it is indeed a means of grace, a weapon of your warfare to equip you as you leave this place and go into the world. You know, I prefer something else, orange juice instead of grape juice. Well, that's nice. I prefer, you know, we have steak on the table instead of bread. I might prefer that, but I didn't make the rules. God did. It's his sacrament to us, to prepare us, to help us. And note this, this table is not for the world. It's not for the world. It wasn't for the people living in Jericho. It, wasn't, it was for the people that were redeemed of the Lord. At least members of the visible community, those that have been baptized into the church, as those who have publicly said, I'm with Christ and His people. That's what it's for. It is, as it were, a line that, that separates you from them. They think what we're doing is stupid, superstitious. No, no, it's a means of grace. It's a weapon of my warfare. I need this meal. I'm thankful we do it every week to remind us of the, of the work of Christ in, in, in giving to us hope. 
But it also points us forward, doesn't it? As it points them forward. That the God who rescued them, our God, our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, will be with us and help us and strengthen us and guide us until the very end of our days and even into eternity. This meal is that, like baptism, equips us for the battle. They are, as it were, weapons against the world and the flesh and the devil. You take the Lord's Supper with frivolity, casually, carelessly, thoughtlessly. The larger catechism has a wonderful section about how to prepare for the Lord's Supper. You should read it. Rooted in Scripture loaded with such wonderful advice and counsel pastorally that you wouldn't be able to get enough of it if you tried. It gives instruction as to how you should behave and what you should be thinking about during the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, how you should act and behave, what you should think about afterwards. But you know, it's not magic. You come to the table or you have the elements given to you and you just take them, you give it no thought because you're worried about what's for lunch or whatever the case may be then you just ate a piece of bread and drank some grape juice or wine. In other words, you're not using the tool rightly. God gives it. He provides it. We must seize it. These weapons of our warfare note that unlike the days of Jericho, our battle is spiritual. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Sometimes I think it, frankly, I'll tell you this, I think it would be easier if I did. Now, I, I mean, I have different ways of eliminating a threat in front of me. Most of them are simple. This one, though, this battle against the flesh, what a battle. The sin that, that reigns within my own black heart and reigns in yours. The world that's out there that would like to see me dead and Satan himself, who really would like to see me dead, you think he likes it when I'm standing up here? I'm reminded of the words of Calvin that Satan is never more active than when the word of God is opened and preached. He's active right now. It's a spiritual battle. It's much more difficult than a physical battle ever would be. We must remember that. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 6 as he seeks to encourage the Ephesian church and other churches in the area that this is a spiritual war. And we must fight it on that level or we will lose. We will lose. The problems with our nation, the problems with our state, the problems with our city, the problems with is a spiritual one. The issues you might be facing at home, they're spiritual issues at the end of the day. It's a spiritual battle, and God has given us the spiritual weapons then, therefore. Baptism and the Lord's Supper as things that will equip us for the battle. As I was working over this sermon, even early this morning, I was thinking about how to somehow include justly in the text the very preaching of the Word. It's not as explicit as, as we might like it to be, but it's there nonetheless. 
How's that, you might think? Well, look at the ways in which God is communicating. He is speaking to Joshua through a mediator to the people. Just like the Savior speaks to you each Lord's Day through the preaching and proclamation of the Word. The Word of the Lord said, the, Lord, the Word of the Lord came to Joshua. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, verse 2, Preaching is a weapon, if rightly used, of your warfare. That's why preaching in this church will always be in the center of worship. You don't have to like it. I wish you would. But it will be. Why? Because I know that the simple proclamation of the Word of God, not creative, not cute, simple, will indeed Eliminate the forces of evil. The Satan and his demons tremble at the word of the living God. And that's what you're hearing. The living voice of Christ, the living word speaking. A larger catechism is helpful here as we seize this weapon of our warfare. A larger catechism, question 160. Go look it up, read it, think about it. Dads, make it happen in your homes. It's not complicated. None of it is. It's not rocket science. Confer with the sermon. Meditate upon it. Talk about it in your family worship times. Not going out to the pizza joint. Use the Lord's Day for these things. You will be equipped supernaturally by the Spirit of God to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Preaching. Paul, at the end of his life, as he's about to leave this world, tells a young pastor, probably in his 30s, he could have said anything. Baptize more people. Nope, didn't say that. Do the Lord's Supper more often. Didn't say that either. Go out into the neighborhood and make converts. Didn't say that. Attend more Bible studies. Didn't say that either. Have more Bible studies. Didn't say that. He did say, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's what preaching does. I know sometimes you get your your toes stepped on by me. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but maybe that's because I'm not offending you. Somebody else is. Reprove, exhort, rebuke with patience and teaching. And that's what he told Timothy. Why? Because as he says, it is an eternal issue. It's eternal. It's a spiritual battle. Fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Second, baptism, as I've already highlighted just briefly. It happens to you once, but you are to remember it. You will hear that in a few weeks as baptisms occur in this church. As I instruct you to remember your baptism. Again, read the larger catechism. Pastorally helpful here. What should you do when you see a baptism? Sit there and smile, take pictures? That's fine. It's a sacrament of the church. It's a weapon of your warfare. Seize it. It's an opportunity to sharpen the sword. The Lord's Supper. We do it all the time here. Like Calvin, which I totally agree with. I know you're shocked by that, but I do disagree with Calvin from time to time. You know, it does happen. It's rare. 
He wanted the Lord's Supper every week. Never got it. But he understood what I've been arguing. That it's a weapon of our warfare. We need this meal. <clears throat> Happens all the time here, every week. A public covenant that states that you love God and are with His people. That line that separates you from the world. It's all expressed in this meal and many other things. That you're resolved to love Him with a new obedience and fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we do it when, as the days on the plains of Jericho had a specific time, we have a specific time for these things too. And some of you are already starting to get antsy. Don't. I won't spend much time on it. But when do we worship the living God? On the day that he is prescribed. That is to say, the Lord's Day. And we spend the whole day in the public and private exercises of God's worship. One of them is the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and the preaching of His Word. We do it on the day that He is prescribed. I didn't prescribe this day. He did. He ordered it. We follow it. We heed it. We obey it. We do so because of that which it pictures. He who was raised from the dead. We worship on the first day of the week because of he who gave us life. The ultimate commander. The commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, which we're going to see in the very next few verses of this chapter. That is to say it's priority. Notice it's in the front of your week, not in response to your week. So easy to forget that. You know, Sunday is not Saturday, part two. It's the first day of the week. We've started a new week. It happened at midnight in one second, unless you have my atomic clock, and then I don't know what year it is. You have to see my Facebook post to understand that comment. It's in the front of your week. Why? That you might be prepared for what? Monday. Nobody likes Mondays. I don't even really enjoy them, and it's my day off. That you might be ready, equipped on the Lord's Day, and reminded of who you are. You are the people of God. And all that it means, and all that it represents, that you might leave this place. This is not where the battle happens, not really. It happens when you walk out those doors. Get in the car on the way home, and Johnny's pulling Susie's hair, and all this, everything goes nuts. It's on the front of the week that we might be ready, thoroughly equipped to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. The weapons of your warfare, brothers and sisters, they're spiritual. They are of no use if they are not used. Your God gives them to you as he gave to them on the plains of Jericho and Joshua 5. He gives them to you today. Will you use them? He equips you to do battle. He will fight for you. He does fight for you. You can't lose. Use the means God has given. No, they're not flashy. No, I've said this before. I've told the elders this. I could fill this place. I could put thousands of people in here. All I got to do is change everything we're doing. Look like the world. Because that'll actually work. That'll rescue the world from the world. No. 
Use the means God has given. He's the one who gave them. Do you have a problem with the means? Your problem is with him. They're not flashy. There's no fireworks going off, no smoke machines, no sm- none of that nonsense. But that doesn't mean they're not trivial. That doesn't mean that they're trivial. They're important, vital, absolutely necessary. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given them to you. He gave you something else to do. Therefore, don't absent yourself from worship each Lord's Day. If you're providentially hindered, that's one thing. You're sick. You broke your foot. Felt like you're going to die. I mean, there's a host of things, and you have to wrestle with what that looks like. Providentially hindered does not mean I don't feel like going to church today. That's not providentially hindered. That's a battle, a spiritual battle. You need to beat it. The way to beat it, come to church. That's how you'll beat it. Don't forsake the advantage that worship provides. Sacraments, the word, they're all here. That thing sits up there. That's it sitting right there. Why? Because we're going to use it today? No. But it's always there, reminding you. It's visible. The stuff is on the table. Why? Because it's visible. We want you to see it. Just like they were doing it on the plains of Jericho, we do it here in this room. Remember, finally, that this is the Lord's way of preparing you. It is so gracious for him to do this. He gets left to us to ourselves. Figure it out. You'll be all right. Let go and let God. It's not what he does. He says, here, look, I'm going to give you the tools. Here they are. Problem for some of us is that we don't like the tools he gives us. Well, again, that is the problem you have with the Lord, not with anything else. But it is the Lord's way of preparing you for this battle. Now seize it. Look, we're all in this together. I got to tell you, it's hard sometimes. Sometimes all I can do is sit back in my study and say, Lord, I wish you'd just return because I'm tired of this. Then I have to be reminded. I'm not returning. Get over yourself. Use the means I've given you. The word, the sacraments, prayer. Use them. And I will be with you. And so he gives you those means to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your Father in heaven gives them to you out of an act of deep love. And frankly, my friends, it would not be loving of me to you to give you less than that. He gives them. The question is, for all of us, is whether or not they will be used. Let's use them. For the glory of Christ. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminder. Help us to use these spiritual weapons against he who would seek our ruin. Be kind to us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.